Hello, and welcome to the Phuket Stories Podcast. I'm your moderator, Saigon Steve. On this special podcast episode, we'll talk with military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam and talk with them about their extraordinary experiences. This podcast is pre-recorded, but you're invited to participate on future podcasts by emailing your contact information to phuketstories at gmail.com. That's phuketstories at gmail.com. So let's get started with today's special guest. Today we're talking with Steve Ronan, who was a medical service specialist known as a medic at Phuket Air Force Base from July 1970 to July 1971. Steve is going to tell us all about his experiences at Phuket. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Steve. So, Steve Ronan, tell us about how you got into the medical profession. I actually got into the medical profession in the Air Force simply by accident in 1967, graduated from high school, and my plan was for them to enlist and chose the Air Force as uh, the service that I wanted to get into. And I went in totally blind, really, to what direction they would put me. I had no idea what kind of a job I would have. And it just cast my fate to the winds. And for some reason, they thought that I would be a good person to spend time with their medical service. I was the only one um, in my graduating basic training uh, to go into a medics out of the 60 in my flight. And there was one other medic in, his, in my sister flight out of the 60. So there were just two of us that chosen, mostly in those days, 67, 68, a lot of the people were going into uh, security police. That seemed to be where the majority of them were going. So when you become a medic, do you go to tech school? We left San Antonio, Lackland, and went to tech school at Shepherd Air Force Base, Wichita Falls, just a short bus ride, really, from, from uh, San Antonio. And it was there, then, that they started us into a basic medical course. This is a basic field medical course where all medics go through. Later, we specialized. After this basic course, then you could choose to go to be, for example, a surgical tech, a physical therapist, or occupational therapist, and there was x-ray and so on. All of us went through basic medical training and then on to our specialties. It was at that time that I chose to go to the medical service specialist, uh, the 902 rating. And those are the ones that went on to mostly work in clinics and hospitals. Those are the guys that gave you the immunizations and put cast on your fractures and stitched up your wounds and so on. But initially, it involved uh, basic medical care, field care. That also, we went on a bivouac. It took us out into the Red River Valley on the border of Texas and Oklahoma. We slept in tents and learned how to care for casualties in the field. We had varying exercises. Uh, there was a map and compass exercise. We had to find our casualties first and then transport them back to an aid station. There was a stretcher obstacle course where we had to put, of course, the heaviest fellow in, in the flight on a stretcher and then run through and, of course, under barbed wire and through culverts, across a swaying bridge, flank gunfire, and uh, 
smoke grenades and so on to simulate the activity of, of, of a battle. And then we learned more. Also, had a course on casualty, mass casualties, where we do an exercise with simulated plane crash involving more than more than a hundred casualties, moulaged up or, or made up to look like a trauma victim. So it was pretty extensive course those first few weeks, mostly geared towards the field medicine aspect of things. I'm wondering, is this kind of like the corpsman in the Navy Marine Corps? It's very- it's very much like the corpsman and the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Marines, and the Army medic. You know, we weren't, by definition, going to be assigned to infantry units, but our training was similar, and even though we weren't out in the field with the Navy corpsman or the Army medics, we had our own to take care of, too. As you know, our bases suffered oftentimes mass casualties, a Tonsonoot at one point, and Denang and others at other times. So we had our own to take care of, too, um, as far as wounded Air Force. Well, we're going to talk about the Vietnam experience with you, but before you <laughs> went to Vietnam, you were stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, true? That's true. This was my first duty assignment, and I was a medic in the intensive care unit at Eglin Air Force Regional Hospital for the first two and a half years of my four-year tour. And that's why I then ended up finishing uh, at Phuket. My final year was at Phuket. So you went from Eglin to Phuket. How did that happen? Well, uh, (laughs) you know, I had been at Eglin quite a while and was feeling that they were going to become looking for me uh, for a new assignment. And in those days, if you remember, we filled up what was known as a dream sheet. And the dream sheet was their list of places where you might want to go should they decide to transfer you. And I really decided at that point that I, I wanted to come to Vietnam. And there were several reasons for that. Maybe one of them was just I had had a busy at Eglin. It was a nice duty station right on the beaches in North Florida. And I know other medics were over doing much harder work. Um, I wasn't quite sure, too, like a lot of people in my times, as to how I felt about the war itself. Remember, this was 1970, and people's thoughts towards the war had started to turn against it. So I was unsure, even at that point, whether I was for it or not, and thought that maybe by going and seeing it for myself, it would help me with it, that decision. The other thing, I guess, maybe just because I'm 22 years old, and you think that everything's an adventure, you're young, and with just do it while it's there. So those are some of the reasons. And I also lost some good friend over there and thought maybe I could go and uh, help finish another job. So why not? Steve, when you left the States and you landed in Vietnam, did you land at Cameron Bay? Did you land at Phuket? Where did you land? You know, I've always thought that I landed at Tonsonu, but now because so many people on our Phuket website seemed like they landed a camera on. I just felt like I was a Tanantanu, but I I won't be held to that. I just remember it was early morning after a uh, long, probably 24-hour flight to get me there, how, uh, like others speak of the heat and the um, smell, uh, greeting us at the door of the airplane, uh, my experience was the same. I um, went to customs relatively easily, and then uh, the good news was I had a, a ready flight. There was a C-123 going to Phuket within a few hours. 
I jumped on it, and um, I was the only passenger there. There was a pallet or two of supplies. I remember landing at Phuket and that tailgate letting down and stepping out onto that track, and there was, like, absolutely no one there. There was not another aircraft on the tarmac. There were no vehicles. There was no sign of life that I could see. And it was kind of a surreal experience. I walked into the terminal. There was one man behind the desk. He called the dispensary, and sure enough, someone came and picked me up and brought me to the dispensary. I'm sorry, the um, barracks, the medical barracks, uh, and the place was empty. Uh, there was, like, no one around, and I, again, it seems very strange that there didn't seem to be anybody home. But he told me that there was a ball game. You know, the medics had a softball game. The, the field was right close to our barracks, and that's where everybody was. So sure enough, I walked over. There we were in the bleachers. The uh, ball game was about to start. An ambulance made its way across the field and backed up to the third base bench where it was sitting. The back doors opened up, and they opened up, um, brought out a stretcher. On the stretcher was a um, styrofoam cooler type thing. I found out later it was a bomb case, and it was full of ice and beer. So I found myself within the first hour of Phuket sitting in the bleachers watching a ball game, not drinking a beer, and thought that... Um, this isn't too bad, but as it turns out, of course, that was probably the best day there, so it was enjoyable while it lasted. Well, I have to ask you this, Steve. When we got off the uh, C-141 and we were taken to the air terminal, and probably within the first hour, we had to drop our pants and get a shot of gamma globulin, I guess that's how you pronounce it, in the rear, and it was like a, uh, a bullet uh, did you have the same thing, or because you were in the dispensary, you dodged that? No, we, uh, that sort of, um, they give you that to boost your immune system, and it's just kind of a more of a preventative uh, thing. I don't think I was ever the recipient of that, <laughs> but I, I handed it out, and I'm aware of the, the, the result of that. And there's also a good technique to giving that, and there's a not-so-good technique to doing that, so... You want to be nice to your medic if he's the one that's giving you that shot. and will warm it up in his hands before he gives it to you and things will go a lot better. Well, there's a scene in the MASH 4077 <laughs> with Alan Alda as a physician, and yes. uh, Margaret Houlihan needs to give him a shot in the rear end for the flu. And he says, yes. I, can, I can only give pain. I can't take it. Yes, that's true. That's right. So, uh Yes, that's true. Um, we did have a point uh, during my year there. We, we immunized 30. I don't remember what it was about or why, but we spent a day filling syringes, and we spent the next day immunizing the entire base. But that was, uh, yeah, that was part of our job. Absolutely true. So tell me what was your first day after the ball game, reporting to the dispensary. What was it like the first day going to work there? Well, you know, the first day or two is, uh, was just, as you can imagine, the orientation. But what happened was a little more dramatic of that. I thought you could just kind of, kind of make your way in there and, and gradually learn the ropes. But within the first week, I think I'd only been there 10 days, and we were told the, the um, inspector general was coming up from Saigon to inspect the dispensary. And, you know, the IG inspector's just stretch out whatever organization he's going to look at. And this is a physician inspector coming up from Saigon to look at the practices of the dispensary. 
The sergeant that was showing me around, my immediate supervisor, he suggested that I stand to the back of the room because I was so new there. I didn't know the procedures and policies, and they were fearful that I would get called upon, and I was all for that. So I did stand in the back of the room against the wall trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. And wouldn't you know that the doctor takes the, the sergeant that was telling me to stay in the back of the room, he pulled him by the sleeve and then pointed to me and said, ask me to come forward. I can almost hear a collective roll of the eyes that he was now calling the newest guy to the front of the room to answer whatever questions he had. When I walked up, he then tugged on the sleeve of the, the sergeant and said, this man has just collapsed in front of you. And what would you do? What do you do next? And so, well, I was right relieved because this was just, he was showing me the scenario for what we call the a witness cardiac arrest. That's when somebody, you witness somebody slump to the floor and then you do an assessment and find out if they're breathing or their heart is going. So I went, there's a protocol for this. There's a logarithm, if you will, that you follow. And medics should know it and doctors and nurses all know it. Because if there's not a physician present, even a medic can run that scenario. So we went through that uh, to the point where I'm starting an IV and uh, giving administering medications. He would ask me what medication I would give and how much, and I would tell him, and he just w would go on through this scenario. And the end of which, apparently, I did a good enough job because my patient survived, my sergeant survived. And they came to me later and said that, uh, that he marked, that physicians had marked that exercise as very satisfactory. So, you know, I was glad with that, not because I was able to answer, but because I, it was favorable for the dispensary. The doctor doesn't care whether I was there for the first week or we had been there for months. It told me that we looked good at that scenario. So it's almost like a medic's firefight, if you will, and therefore the medics were not under fire, but... In a sense, I was, and I thought I'd be tested in different ways as a medic going onto a combat zone. But as it turned out, I was tested in a way that I was pretty comfortable with. So, yeah, I had a pretty um, uh, eventful first week there, as it turned out. Well, what's it like going from a hospital in Florida to a dispensary at Phuket, Vietnam? You know, the the high-tech environment, um, our intensive care unit at Eglin was um, one, uh, as as high-tech as any. Um, we prided ourselves in, in the equipment that we had that we could utilize and our ability to use it. Of course, Fucat was just a small uh, dispensary that could manage situations uh, short-term, but any serious illness, we had to medevac what they call a dust-off to call in the medevac to take that to an Army or an Air Force facility. So it was quite a different situation, and what we were looking at was a lot different in that our patients now are mostly younger guys and not serious chronic illnesses, but with trauma-related illnesses, injuries, and diseases that I hadn't seen before. We hadn't worked with malaria. I hadn't seen embryonic dysentery. I hadn't seen men wounded by white phosphorus grenades, uh, that sort of thing. So it was kind of new and different. And I found myself thinking that even though I had spent that much time at Eglin, we were now more reverting back to that basic medical field care 
that we were taught way back in medic school. We did the best we could with what we had, and I was proud of what we did do. We were limited there and, and so on. Treated a lot of Vietnamese civilians. Um, we did see some that would come to us for care. We saw them both in the industry as well as outside. We did go out on med caps, if you want to talk about that in a little bit. But the facility was, was much more basic than what we had uh, at Eglin. So if it got real serious, you put them in a helicopter, yes. and you took them to places like Quinyan, I guess. That's right. Quinyan was just a short hop away uh, by, by medevac or by the dust off. So we would stabilize our patients, stabilize them, stop the bleeding, uh, make sure they had a good airway, get an IV line running, and then uh, by then we could put them on a dust off for better care Quinyan. That's where the surgical hospital was. Can you tell us what was the worst case you saw at Phuket? We saw so many, and so many things were emergent. It's hard to say which one was more life-threatening or not. I did have an incident that we thought was threatening, but not in the way you may think. I got called to the main gate one night, and we didn't usually get called to the main gate. But uh, this was late at night, and when I got there, there was a great deal of activity and I could see that there was a large truck, like a two-ton truck, that had backed up the road leading out from the main gate and had parked itself just where the light from the spotlight from the gate was, and the shadow started. And that's where the security people had made it stop. So the officer in charge, or the NCO in charge, just told me to stop a minute, that somebody in the truck was, was hurt and requesting medical care, that they needed to secure the area first. Meanwhile, they called the, what they called the REACT team, I believe, and it was a security police that would come and uh, from, for situations like this, if there were security issues. So uh, they called the security people, came down, and they put them up in the guard towers and put them in the bunkers surrounding the main gate. And they wanted me to hold even more because they called up a, um, it was an APC uh, track that, that had the 50 cal machine guns on it, and that positioned off to my right. So they're getting all the security together before they would let me go out to the truck and see, you know, what the problem was there. Finally, he opened the, he opened the gate and let me through. I walked down to the truck to see what was in it. I climbed up in it and saw that there was an old mama sign, an old papa sign there, just as frightened as could be. And on a stretch, it was a young woman, and she was uh, trying to have her baby. She was accompanied by her husband there, and the four of them were just terrified. When I looked out the back of the truck, I could see why. It seemed like every <laughs> security policeman on our base had their weapons pointed in our direction. Yeah, this was a problem. Um, this lady was having a very difficult time. and I had seen a lot in my time, but I had never birthed a baby, especially in the back of a truck in a situation like this. I called the base back on the radio, and it, we decided that the best event was to just bring on base. One of the flight surgeons, I think, was an OBGYN back in the world. He took a look at her and decided we needed to send her and send her now. And we called in the dust off, and they came in and took her off, her and her mother. And I often wondered, as years, it's been 50 years now, and she might be a grandmother herself at this point. It's one of those that wasn't the worst situation. I treated battle wounded. I took care of um, a security policeman that had shrapnel wounds in his arm from a, a, uh, an attack in December of that year. 
and I've seen a lot of it, but it seemed like the, the most anxious time was uh, simply about seeing that that mother and baby survived. Well, Phuket had a lot of things, but no maternity ward. <laughs> That's the fact. That's some story. Steve Ronan, you were a medic, and you you mentioned this acronym called MEDCAP. What is MEDCAP? MEDCAP is the Medical Civil Action Program. It was a program by which we could reach out in a humanitarian way to the Vietnamese community. We coordinated with a MACV outfit, uh, I think in Anyon, um, outside of Quinyon, and we coordinated with them. They would help us to reach out where the need was greatest, and they would also provide security for us. Um, so we would end up, we would take what supplies we could, or what extra supplies we had, and uh, meet up with the um, Army uh, MACV people, and then transfer out to a village or a hamlet or perhaps a school where we would immunize school children. And at one time went to um, what was described as a refugee camp. And we would then set up a small clinic and provide what care we could. We'd bring dentists with us and dental techs for that, you know, for that kind of care. So it was a humanitarian reaching out to the Vietnamese community in a medical way. So you were in the 12th? United States Air Force Dispensary, the 12th Combat yes. Support Group. I understand you received an award from the Vietnamese government. Tell us about that. Yes, because the, the dispensary, the, we received a, um, I have to think to manage, um, the, it's called the Civic Actions Award, Civic Actions Medal Award, and it's granted by the Vietnamese government to dispensaries such as ours that made the effort to, on a humanitarian basis, reach out to the community civilians and do uh, medical care for them. So we were given that award. And I, for some reason, too, got a certificate of appreciation from the Minister of Health of Vietnam. I don't know who put that in uh, for me, but I appreciate that they did. So I received a reward from also from the Vietnamese government. So, and there were many dispensaries that received that same award. We tried what we do what we could for the civilian population. After all, uh, it's the civilians that suffer mostly in in a war zone like that. Steve Ronan, and I always like to finish the podcast with something light. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure a lot of service personnel heard at Phuket. If you went downtown to Quignon and you partook in something extraordinary, if you know what I mean, and you caught something yeah. extraordinary, and they yeah. couldn't find out how to cure it back at Phuket, you were not yeah. going to go back home to the States. Is that a true story, or is that folklore? The story was out there and about, but it was definitely folklore. It was just one more reason to watch what you did and who you did it with. But the idea and the rumor was that uh, there was a an, an island off of the Philippines, and uh, that's where you would end up because it was so communicable that you couldn't never go back to the state. So, uh, no, there was no truth to that, but it sure did scare a number of people. Steve Ronan... You were probably one of the unsung heroes of Phuket because you were there when we needed you. After Phuket Air Force Base and coming back to the world, after discharge, were you able to use your military and medical training to help people in civilian life? 
you know, I went to this looking for direction. I had no idea what, what I was going to do, and they found this medic test for me. As it turns out, I came out and went to a respiratory therapy school. I got a degree in respiratory therapy. You probably heard more about them now with the pandemic going on. And so I stayed in healthcare and I was a respiratory therapist in the intensive care unit for 35 years. So the Air Force and D-Fine found me. I was one of those examples where I went in not knowing where I was going, and they gave me that opportunity to look at something that I probably never would have looked, but they opened that door for me, and I'm appreciative of it, too. So just to let you know that how that ended up. Steve Ronan, thank you for your service. Thanks so much, Steve. It's good talking with you. Well, that wraps up another special episode of Fucat Stories. If you'd like to participate in a future Fucat Stories podcast, email your contact information to fucatstories at gmail.com. That's fucatstories at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Fucat Stories podcast. I'm Saigon Steve.